Kentucky. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Gradcast, the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. I'm Yusuf, and I'm joined here with my co-host. I'm Yimin Shen. Hello. Great, and we are here with uh, Jacqueline Siegel, who is a PhD student doing、uh, social psychology, and we're super excited to have you on、uh, on our show, Jacqueline. Welcome. Thank、Again. you. I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. To start with,、uh, would you be able to give us just a really quick, brief introduction、um, about what you study in social psychology? Sure. So I study a variety of different topics within the field of social psychology. However, the primary area of my research is on gender, the psychology of gender,、um, the social construction of masculinity and femininity, and how it is that people who、um, go against the grain,、uh, what their experiences are like, and how they're perceived. So I study feminist identity as well as men who engage in non-typical and non-traditional、um, career paths and activities. Okay, so so that's kind of an example of what you mean when you say against the grain. So, like, not traditional masculine, I guess, performance of gender identity. Exactly. So,、um, I'm interested in conformity to feminine and masculine norms,、um, and how it is that people who don't conform to feminine and masculine norms engage with the world.、Um, that's one component of it.、Uh, I look. Feminist identity is at the core of what I study. Of what it means to call yourself a feminist, to be a feminist, to act like a feminist, and how it is that that varies based on gender and race. Oh wow! Sorry, that's、uh, really neat. But、um, <laughs> well, you're actually not here today、uh, to talk about your research per se.、Um, I understand that、uh, lately you've been digging into some cases. At the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, and have come up with a lot of really interesting stuff. Yes.、Um, so, what I have found、uh, in my research and in my experiences is that litigation and court proceedings are certainly one way that human rights and feminism, being one area of human rights,、um, it's one way that it can be enacted and it can be kind of addressed. Uh, so I, over the summer, I well, going back even further, I've been kind of obsessed with court proceedings for quite some time. I listened to this podcast;、um, the new one just came out today,、uh, but it's called "Let's Go to Court," and it's all about both criminal and civil court cases. And I've been listening to it for quite some time,、uh, and I wanted to develop a more comprehensive understanding of what was going on because I was listening and I knew that I was enjoying it, but I wanted to learn the ins and outs. So over the summer, I decided to take、um, an introduction to law class, and I really, really loved it. And my family is now terrified that I'm going to go to law school, but、um, we'll see where that goes. But I wanted to learn more about how it is that the human rights tribunal cases were happening in Ontario, particularly because human rights tribunals. Are not not so big in the states.、Um, we do things a little differently there. So I was curious to see how things were different between the United States and Canada because I am American, unfortunately. Okay.、Um, so just to start off, then, would you be able to describe just a bit, like, what is a human rights tribunal? Yep. So the HRTO is the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, and it's a social justice tribunal whose core values include accessibility,、uh, fairness and independence, timeliness, transparency, professionalism, and public service. So what they do in the Human Rights Tribunal,、uh, if you feel as though you have experienced discrimination, 
that limits your rights to employment, uh, accommodation, goods, services, and facilities, contracts, or membership in trade and vocational associations on the basis of various different demographics. Um, there's a number of them listed, but some of them include race, color, um, citizenship, creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender, age, marital status, um, and the likes. If you feel as though you have experienced discrimination that has limited your ability to actively engage with, um, with either employment or throughout the world because of these things, then you can file a claim through the Human Rights Tribunal. Um, you can file a, a complaint through the code. Um, and so in general, just for context, the process is such that the complainant um, or the applicant describes the situation that occurred. They ask for, uh, they propose a remedy, which could be something like sensitivity training for the organization, uh, reconsideration of a decision, or punitive damages if the harm done has uh, affected them in a way that goes kind of above and beyond standard day-to-day -day rectifying. Uh, and then after that is filed, the respondent has the opportunity to respond in full and explain why the decision was made, whether um, usually that prejudice was not involved in the decision. Um, and then they, both parties can decide if they want to mediate or if they want to take it to court. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting process. Um, anything that is documented uh, as like the three that we're talking about today are things that were either, either the parties did not want to mediate or mediation was not successful. And so they were taken forward. Okay, so wow. Uh, I was just thinking some people have hobbies of doing fishing perhaps or maybe <laughs> cooking some interesting foods. And it seems that your side hobby is to look at human rights tribunal cases. Um, could you just briefly let us know how you came to be so interested as well in going on this path and sort of regularly check out these cases and um, perhaps learn from them and also provide insight to people around you? Yes. Um... So there are a number of human rights issues that I am passionate about. And some of it came from my time as the Gender Concerns Commissioner of SOGS when I was working uh, to create intersectional advocacy initiatives with the other commissioners. Uh, there were a lot of issues and problems that I kind of had an awareness of, but I didn't realize how prevalent they were in the day to day, particularly working with Ashton Forest and accessibility um, issues. I, d I just, it's not something that I have the framework for and the awareness of. So I wanted to learn more about how these issues were litigated and how people's, um, how people's human rights issues really were being resolved or not. Um, so I just kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about the process and I'm nosy and I wanted to see what was going on with Western in particular. I was like, what is Western? What are people saying about Western? Uh, why, are, why is Western being brought to the Human Rights Tribunal? Um, and it's been very interesting to look at the cases uh, in, with which Western is involved. Okay, and so you said you have three cases uh, to discuss with us today, and they're all concerning Western University. They are, in fact, all concerning Western. Oh boy. One of them is, um, involves SOGS, that is now separate from Western. But back in the day, I think they were a little bit more connected. Okay. Yes. Um, so just as like a disclaimer, I'm taking some creative liberties uh, with these stories, but the facts of the case are all summarized on the C-A-N-L-I-I 
uh, website. Uh, there are the documents that I used to create these kind of scripts are all from there. Uh, and just the full names are written in each of these documents, but just to maintain some sense of privacy, I'm just going to use initials uh, as long as we're all cool with that. Sure. And sure. Uh, provide a link to those documents that website as well with yep. episode information. Perfect. Okay, folks, are are you ready for the first the first case? Let me get the drums. Go. Okay. So, I like this story a lot because it involves our very own society of graduate students. Mm -hmm. uh, and interestingly enough, I was actually talking to Martin, so the old ombudsperson, the other day, and he said that this incident was actually what sparked the creation of the SOGS Code of Conduct that he assisted wow. in writing. So wow. this this story's got some history. Okay. okay. Anyway, the year was 2009. President Obama had just been inaugurated into the White House in the United States. Kesha's famous TikTok was released, and the H1N1 was making the rounds. But here in London, Ontario, was where the real drama was taking place. So as we all know, the election for SOG's president can be heated and contentious. So students were waiting in eager anticipation for the results of the 2009 SOG's presidential election to be released. And one of these students was RT, who had run a campaign for SOG's president. So I had a little trouble following the dates, um, but this is what is written on, on this page. Um, it looks like the emails that I'm about to describe were sent before the election even happened, um, which is confusing and doesn't really make that much sense, but this is, what, this is the material I'm working with. So apparently RT had a fairly contentious relationship with the speaker, um, who I will call FS, uh, and apparently he had sent a few emails on March 11th of 2009 in which he referred to the proceedings of the Election Appeals Board, which is, I guess, our Appeals Review Commission now, but he called it a kangaroo court and described a decision as, quote unquote, illogical, absurd, and biased. Wow, that's strong language. Yeah. So he sent two emails on this March 11th date. Um, the first concluded with the line, rest assured, I will defeat your stupidity in the end. Uh, and these are all, I'm, I'm, I'm taking some creative liberties, but any quotes that I'm pulling are directly from these documents. Um, and apparently in the second email, he just wrote, Miss S, I look forward to the day when your time as speaker and CRO comes to an end. Your utter incompetence, blundering, anti-democratic decisions, defamatory actions, twisted interpretations, factual distortions, and shrill babbling has embarrassed the society for too long. Frankly, I am amazed by your claim of prior experience. Let me know when the hearing will be held so that I may address the EAB uh, directly. The less I see your name, the less nauseated I feel. Uh, and then I guess a third email was sent a few days later that said, the subject line was, I believe, you lied. And the applicant, um, so RT went on to complain because instead of the complaints that had been alleged against him, instead of being uh, given the actual complaints, he was given a a text of the three complaints. I don't know what the distinction was, but this is what was written. So regardless of the dates, on March 23rd, um, so, well, ultimately, um, RT won the election, but on March 23rd, uh, the speaker said that the election was invalid. Drama, mm. big deal, big, big drama in SOGS. Uh, and RT was no longer going to be president. Now. This would be an upsetting situation for anyone, and RT probably felt frustrated by the proceedings, particularly in light of his attitude toward FS as communicated in those emails. Mm -hmm. 
So two days after the appeal, FS, so the speaker, had to enter the SOG's office for some reason. It's never articulated in these documents why she was in the office, um, but she was in there for some reason, and it was after hours. However, RT saw this and thought that this was ridiculous and unfair. What was she doing in there? Was it possible that she was colluding with the opponents because now there's going to be another election? And there was only one solution, of course, and it was to videotape the speaker so that he had evidence of her shady behavior on film. So apparently this led to an altercation with another student that night and then at council the following day, RT acted in a manner that um, the speaker found as aggressive. Um, Jacqueline, this incident happened after the election or before the election? So this happened after the election. Okay. Yes. So she decided to file a complaint of harassment to the university through the student code of conduct on the basis that RT's behavior created an intimidating demeanor. I'm sorry, intimidating, demeaning, or hostile working or academic environment. So student code of conduct is a great little thing. Uh, when students violate the student code of conduct, they can be reported to the university. Um, we know that there are um, gaps in this process, but at the time, the university was willing to help. Um, and so they contacted RT with all of this information about these allegations and he had an opportunity to respond. So he employed a lawyer to help represent him, um, but the vice provost said that they were just having an initial meeting and he wasn't allowed to have legal representation at that stage. Um, legal representation is only allowed at the appeal stage. So the vice provost concluded that um, the emails, the videotaping and the conduct at, uh, directed toward the speaker at the meeting did constitute harassment under the code. Um, he did acknowledge that freedom of speech is important, but he felt that these, uh, the conversations went well beyond political discourse um, and that they actually did constitute harassment. They were aggressive and that she was unable to perform her duties on campus as a result of this behavior. So the vice provost issued a formal reprimand and a no contact order between FS and RT. So there was an appeal um, on August 13th, 2010. So this is quite a while after, uh, but it was denied. And then RT appealed to the president of the university on January 5th, 2011, and the president dismissed the appeal. And the denial was, I think they provided a lot of reasons for why they're denying as well. So um, we're, we're not even at the court yet, Yusuf. Oh. <laughs> this is just at the university level, but we're getting there, I promise. Oh boy. Um, RT found that this was unreasonable for a number of decisions. He felt that he was denied fairness. Um, he felt that this was unre unreasonable disciplinary action and it was a violation of his freedom of expression. But the court did ultimately find, well, he, so he filed with the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario to, to say that he, he had been wronged in this regard. But the court found that he was not denied procedural fairness. Um, he found, they said that the no contact order and the reprimand were not sufficiently serious to ever necessitate the presence of legal counsel. Um, and these things wouldn't have even shown up on his transcript. They were only available on a need to know basis through the administration. Um, and now, unfortunately, publicly documented through this court case. <laughs> um, uh, so they said that legal representation was not necessary at that stage. Second, they said that the treatment was not unfair um, and that um, RT's behavior was not actually freedom of speech, but it was demeaning and um, these were kind of verbal attacks on the speaker at the time. Um, accordingly, the 
application for judicial review was ultimately dismissed because it was said that it had no potential for um, for success at, at the actual court stage. And the parties agreed that costs should follow. And so there was a cap at $10,000 um, to the university, uh, inclusive of HST and disbursements. So that was case one. Wow. So I had a comment in terms of that email that was sent prior to the election. I think uh, the way he used, and it's surprising that someone who's running for that position, uh, who's supposed to be trying to be at least more careful, still couldn't contain himself in, in himself to go out and say words like shrill. Uh, was he? Did you th do you think he felt very entitled to say whatever he felt, or so what are your thoughts? I can't ascribe any motivation to his particular behaviors. Um, I do think that comments such as that tend to be gendered, particularly the term shrill is a term that is often applied to women um, more so than it is to men. Um, you know, I don't want to defend harassment by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, that said, the election is a stressful time. So his, while his, while ultimately the impact was harmful, um, his motivation may not have been necessarily to be terrible, it might have just been that he was frustrated about everything going on. However, when women experience um, this sort of harassment, not necessarily this case in particular, but comments such as these directed, targeted messages that are um, clearly meant to demean and intimidate, then that is completely unacceptable. And I was surprised to see that the university did in that instance take, um, really take action against that kind of behavior because there are certainly situations like that. People that I know, people like myself who receive emails like that quite regularly. And um, either because people are afraid to report behavior such as that, or feel that they will not be supported um, by the university. Exactly. I mean, there, yeah. there is so many incidents like this, but one that doesn't have the confidence that, you know, justice will be served, or at least that kind of harm will be stopped. And they don't want to voice their concerns in the right paths. And I'm glad this person did and it was yeah. handled pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was ultimately a pretty successful harassment kind of reporting experience. I know for a lot of people, myself included, uh, reporting harassment does not always go this well. Oftentimes, women are told that there's nothing that can be done. And unfortunately, the problem with things like that is that these behaviors don't stop. Oftentimes, they metastasize and expand and be stop being just emails, but start being phone calls and, and direct messages. Uh, and they don't just target one person. Oftentimes, if a no contact order is issued against one person, the behavior will then transfer onto another. And I'm not saying that this is what happened with this particular case. Um, I don't know anything about the student. It was far before my time at Western. But this is something that tends to happen with people who harass people, um, particularly through the internet. Yeah. Well, that was a pretty strong start with the first case. Uh, what else do you have? Uh, so, interestingly enough, I actually led with that one because it's the least interesting of the three. Oh, wow. Okay. Buckle up, friends. <laughs> what am I here? This one is my personal favorite. Okay. So, the year was 2016 and the Western Pre-Law Society was gearing up for its annual election. For any undergraduates listening, 
if any undergraduates listen to this, Free Law Society is still in existence, and they have a dope website and social media presence if you want to check it out. Um, it looks like they host a lot of great events. Anyway, that spring, all the pre-law hopefuls were busy getting their resumes together and establishing their campaign platforms. One of these candidates was 28-year-old DS, a Western student who was an active and dedicated member of the pre-law society. He was, you know, he didn't have that much experience with the group, but he really wanted to be involved. And uh, so he decided that he was going to run for VP External Affairs. And he was absolutely certain that he was the right man for the job. Now, Dan's a kind of a rocky history with the other members of the club. Um, you know, he, you know, he had a, a little bit of a, a history with the president of the club in particular. Um, he was very interested in her and he had actually um, asked her out for what I presumed to be kind of a, a, a romantic evening, but she had rejected his advances. But DS was not to be deterred. Apparently, no was, was not the answer that he was looking for. So he actually asked the president out several times, and each time she said no. Um, all jokes aside, apparently this really started to freak her out, and she got scared because someone called the police about it. Um, so I don't, of course, I don't know the details of that situation, but this was clearly something that she was not comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Anyway, fast forward to the day of the election. The students all held their breath as they waited for the winners to be announced. This was a very important moment in their lives to us. After all, holding an officer position in an undergraduate pre-law society is really an outstanding accomplishment, the highest honor. But imagine DS's disappointment when he learned that he had not been elected to VP External Affairs. He was shocked. He was frustrated. He was litigious. So he <laughs> took a look around, examined the situation, and recognized there was only one possible explanation for what had happened. He had been wronged. Now, according to the HRTO decision document, after he filed this, because he filed through um, the Human Rights Tribunal, the applicant asserted that he was subject to discrimination on the basis of his age and his grade, um, that he was not hired as vice president of external affairs, given his higher level of the university, and because they thought he was too old for the role. He also asserted that he was threatened and coerced with police and legal action for making a complaint regarding election impropriety, and that this is a reprisal for raising those issues. So you're not allowed to um, punish someone for asserting their right to, the, to use the Human Rights Tribunal. And he said that this was a reprisal for, for that. So he also asserted that there was corruption in the club's voting process. Now, in particular, in his oral arguments, he sought to make the following four points, and this is directly from the document. One, unspecified females circumvented males from being able to move up through leadership ranks in the clubs. Those pesky females. Two, females are trying to circumvent males getting into law school. Absolutely true. I study feminism, and this is exactly what we're trying to do. <laughs> this is the World Feminist Forum. Yes. Three, females are trying to solidify their position so they can advance themselves. And four, my personal favorite is that his right to being a male is being taken away from him. Yeah, I read that one and it was... <laughs> Did your brain implode? Yeah, I couldn't stop reading actually. Uh, it was late at night and I'm like, this is, I need, I need popcorn right this moment actually. 
this one, yeah, that, that last point was, um, I felt he would have difficulty arguing that in court. Yeah, that's wild. What, what's the justification for him claiming that um, he was no longer allowed to be a male? Because in, his right to being a man includes him sexually harassing the president, apparently. Uh, of course. I should not say sexually harassing. I mean, my opinion was that those behaviors seemed to have been sexually harassing, but there were never like formal complaints brought up of sexual harassment, except maybe with the police, but I don't have access to that. Okay. Anyway, you can see I'm very concerned with um, right, so defamation. This, <laughs> this person had a few claims that he thought there's sort of discrimination based on age, also gender as well. And reprisal. And it was really the reason it wasn't about his actual age. It was more that he was a third year PhD student and in, on to his final year. And there's a slight preference of having people who can, you know, um, have a two year uh, sustained position for two years or something like that as well. And yep. So you're getting into exactly what the pre-law society response included. Uh, one was that, yes, there is, of course, a preference for people to be able to serve out their full two terms. And he was um, kind of, it wasn't that he was advanced in age that was the issue. It was that he was advanced in his grade. However, that's not discrimination on the basis of age because students can be any age. Um, this society also noted that things like academic accomplishments are taken into consideration. And they noted that um, this applicant, quote unquote, had very little experience in the club and did not have a strong academic background. They also said that um, the filing of the report was part of an ongoing pattern of harassment against the president, quote unquote. The president rebuffed his advances and um, then the other student filed the police complaint and then it was just like a week or so after that that this um, tribunal court um, was filed. So if we're gonna talk about Reprisal that might be and uh, something like that. Anyway, the tribunal found that this application would not be successful in court for the following reasons. One, there was no evidence of age-based discrimination. Two, no goods or services were denied to him. Um, he was still a full member of the club. Um, just because he didn't hold the position doesn't mean that he was denied quote-unquote access to it. And third, and importantly, rebuffing a sexual advance is not evidence of gender-based discrimination. Um, <laughs> that is, I think, key here. Um, and I just, <laughs> I laughed at the end because the judge did add a few extra statements, but he wrote, um, the applicant's verbal allegations pertaining to discrimination on the basis of gender are vague, lack coherence, and do not appear to relate to the parties. His admissions are mostly about unspecified women. He alleges that these women are generally trying to prevent men in general from advancing in various spheres. These allegations are unrelated to the respondent and even if proven would not constitute discrimination by the parties named in this application. But anyway, this was all documented in a report from uh, November, 2017. Uh, so you would think this is the end of it, but no, DS no. thought that he had been wronged. This decision was malarkey. He felt that uh, he, he needed to do something else about it. So in February of 2018, DS filed a request for reconsideration of this decision. The judge took a hard look. After all, everything was up in the air again. And all of these points that, the, that DS had made, they were completely valid and needed to be readdressed. But you see, the problem was um, that uh, 
a decision for uh, reappraisal must be filed within 30 days and this was 75 days after the decision. So gavel, gavel, court adjourned. <laughs> right. Wow. It, it's incredible how much time was spent on this and the back and forth on, on what. This guy needed some help with his friends guiding him, him to maybe not go in some path. Um, also, Jacqueline, I was wondering, what do you think about this? Like, just reading those emails as well in the first case and this case as well, um, the, it would maybe be helpful if the university actually posts some actual emails and stuff without the names, though, uh, to give examples of what constitutes intimidation, bullying, or actual harassment cases. Uh, people sometimes don't have a good idea and think that they have they have the right to maybe sometimes go in these parts and maybe we need to see actual cases of what violates student code of conduct what are your thoughts so, on this i i have a lot of thoughts about this um <laughs> i think it would be excellent for the university to give examples of behaviors that would constitute violations of the student code of conduct however i do understand why the university would be hesitant to do that because every situation is different um and they they don't want to say yes an email like this constitutes this when there may be background factors or mitigating factors that would influence why something like that would not be put forward because if they give an exemplar then students may just it just gives you know more reasons for um for the university to find themselves in a, a complicated uh legal situation this making these statements quite broad and vague in the student code of conduct get, does give the university some leeway to make a decision as they see fit. Um, the other thing with harassment is that it's defined differently um, depending on who is using the term, but oftentimes it necessitates a kind of vexatious pattern of behaviors that doesn't that doesn't occur in one particular setting. There are some instances where an in, where an incident of harassment is so kind of abject and clearly meant to um, harm the other person that one single incident can constitute harassment, but more often than not, it is kind of a pattern. So do I think that it would be good for the university to show examples? Yes, but I understand why they would be reluctant to do so. Thank you. Wow. Okay, well, so far, um you presented two cases that clearly get at a vast uh, feminist conspiracy to undermine and overthrow uh, men and our ability to be male. Uh, is your third case along the same sort of lines, Jacqueline? It is not. The third case um, is not gender related at all. It's, um, it's, uh, it's actually rather interesting, this case. Um, I was just surprised that this happened at Western is, is how I felt about it. Okay. So who set the scene again? In the lights. The year was 2007. An FC was a bright eyed, bushy tailed first year law student. He was intelligent and outspoken and he liked to talk in class. In fact, he asked a lot of questions during that first year of law school, but they weren't your standard questions. In fact, the other students described his questions as, quote unquote, unduly gruesome, macabre, frightening, and graphic. 
wow. including, and I quote, highly inappropriate references to individual students. For example, in his criminal law class, FZ posed a hypothetical question about one of his classmates getting drunk, uh, him putting her in a position where she would choke, and her dying. But you know, FZ was just like you and me. He wouldn't always pay attention during class and sometimes found himself on the YouTubes. Although his video preferences were a little different than mine, um, presumably different than yours too, but I don't know Yemen that well. Um, anyway, according to the decision I read, the, the applicant was watching videos posted to YouTube depicting terrorist activity and suicide bombings. Now, wow. yeah. Oh, this is just the beginning, friends. And this is in class? This is in class. Oh, wow. But he also had a vibrant and active social media presence outside of class. Um, apparently, he ran a Facebook page in which he referred to himself as Dr. Frankenstein. And uh, on this page, he noted that he was learning a lot in law school, such as, and I quote, how to get away with murder. Now, <laughs> the school caught wind of this, and uh, the dean decided that this student maybe shouldn't be on campus for a little while. So, uh, he was given a little uh, on-campus suspension and ordered to see a psychiatrist who made the following observations. One, as a child, FZ would set fires, small fires, and he would put them out, but fires. Um, two, around the time of Columbine, FZ would quote unquote, dress in black, wear a black trench coat, and had long dark hair. Oh no. Three, he quote unquote, identified himself with some traits that school shooters had, but he was adamant about the value he placed in education and his distance from criminal intention. And four, the psychiatrist said that um, despite all of this, he probably didn't pose a legitimate threat to the student body. He was more just like interested in the culture of this stuff rather than actually perpetrating a crime. The third point was that he had, he admitted to having traits similar to those of actual shooters and school shooters. So the psychiatrist felt that he had, well, I don't know. It said he identified himself with some traits that school shooters had. Except that he said, I, for sure, I won't go in that path because education is important, something like that. That does seem to be what was going on, yes. So anyway, the dean let wow. him know that any repetition of these behaviors, of the behaviors that resulted in his suspension in the first place would result in expulsion, an FZ eager to get back to class, noted that he was, quote unquote, willing to satisfy whatever prerequisites there were to satisfy to earn that allowance of being let back to the university. So this was November 27th, and things were okay for a while. Um, FC was back in classes, learning all about law from the finest professors that Western has to offer. And then on March 3rd, 2008, a new complaint was filed against him. On his Facebook page, FC had written, I have no tolerance for subhuman filth. Their days are numbered and they will be shown no mercy because they are worth nothing. Initially, he had written this post in English and then he deleted it and wrote it in German, which is important, um, as we will see. So according to this filing, uh, the posting came shortly after a quote-unquote heated argument between um, uh, FZ and another student in which he referred to the student as subhuman. So by using this term again, he was... Um, it was assumed that he was speaking about that student in particular. Um, the student was a friend of FZ who, to FZ's knowledge, understood the German language. 
Um, and FZ strongly believed, quote unquote, that white people who engage in sexual relations with people of color are, quote unquote, subhuman. So that is where that um, term came from. Uh, the student was, uh, who saw this uh, and presumably understood German saw this posting and he complained to the authorities because that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so then on March 20th, so this was about two and a half weeks later, the dean informed um, FC that he was expelled from the law faculty. And then he appealed the decision on April 2nd. Um, in the appeal, he noted that the uni could not condemn his off-campus behavior and that his posting was protected by the Canadian Charter of yeah. Rights and Freedoms because it was free speech. Free speech, of course. Free speech. <laughs> um, so the appeal was denied. Uh, and in a seven-page ruling, the appeal committee noted, among other things, um, that uh, FZ intended for the person who filed the complaint to understand that he viewed him as subhuman, um, and that subhumans are a threat that's devastating to civilization. He also noted that um, uh, FZ told the panel he had been mistaken in calling him subhuman, and actually just meant that he was morally degenerate, and then Epsi also told the panel, quote unquote, that he believes there will be a race war in about 20 years and that Europeans will take drastic measures to preserve their race. Such measures will include the elimination or eradication of race traitors, such as those who condone race mixing. Uh, apparently in cross-examination, he agreed that a subhuman was of lesser status than a human and that the student about whom he was writing would understand the historical connotations of the word subhuman. Wow. So. Uh, he filed a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal, and the court found that the university was well within their rights to enforce the student code of conduct in this case. Uh, the student code of conduct does say that off-campus behavior is uh, subject to the code. Uh, apparently, the student knowingly and uh, by, according to these documents, uh, kind of willingly violated the terms of his re-release to the university by posting first in English thinking about it and then writing it again in German. They, they really seem to stick on that. Um, and that this was not free speech because he was threatening violence against another person. Uh, the, the court concluded by saying that they found the decision of the appeal committee was eminently reasonable and the proceedings followed throughout were fair. He found that the decisions of the university officials regarding FZ's conduct to be accorded to a high degree of deference. So, yeah. yeah. So what things that we have learned from this last case, um, maybe don't threaten other students. Right, there's so much to unpack. One, I think um, the university probably has a you know a special uh, off the charts cases section as well. And I'm sure this guy must have met the criteria to be put in, in that list because this was a little more towards a crazy part. and. It was terrifying, actually. Um, but yeah, it was interesting that this person also tried to argue that because his post was on Facebook, that the code doesn't apply to it. And yet he forgets or is not willing to hear this out that his behavior is impacting people or his uh, other students on campus. Uh, no one will feel safe in his presence if he's there. So, so the thing with the student code of conduct, and this is a debate that continues today, despite the fact that it is clearly written in the student code of conduct that off-campus behavior can be pursued through the code, 
Um, but there's debate about how much the university can enforce off campus. Like I remember last year when there was FOCO and the Brockdale parties and some people online were saying that the university should take action against the students and there was debate about like, well, can they? Because the university doesn't like own the students. So what they do off campus is their business. Like where, where do these lines exist? And there are certain um, criteria that are set out in the student code of conduct, such as um, when the student is acting as a representative of the university, or when the behavior is done in a place where a reasonable number of, where a substantial number of Western students are reasonably expected to be. Um, but there is still some wiggle room in that. Hmm. Right. And I mean, I imagine, um, there are some fuzzy lines and boundaries, but um, raving about a race war and subhumans, I, I think probably quite clearly crosses uh, a lot of whatever potential lines there might be. And I, I mean, I'm, it, I'm glad that uh, Western saw fit to expel this student. Yes, I tend to agree. Uh, most often, most of the times, I find that expulsion is like a very, very severe punishment um, that should really be reserved for the most extreme cases. I think that this was a case where expulsion was warranted, particularly given that there had been an agreement that was reached that said, if this behavior is con continues, then um, we will expel. So there was already a contract in place um, that was violated. Yeah, I, I felt in fact that the suspension was a bit lenient. I mean, it was such a severe case of actual threat. Uh, but given that the psychologist said, well, okay, he says this, but perhaps still doesn't pose a threat quite. I guess I was right. But after violating it again with a machine gun image with that phrase for, for a particular student and admitting that you have traits similar to, to those of actual shooters, I wouldn't feel safe to go near this person at all or anyone else should either. And it's a safety concern. I think perfectly good decision. Yeah, and there are a number of reasons why a university would be hesitant to engage, to really lay, lay it down like that and say, actually, no, you cannot be a member of this community. Um, the first of which is unfortunately that tuition is paid. And so like for, from a financial perspective, it's a bad move to um, expel a student. I don't think that is like the primary motivator in, in these decisions, but it's certainly something to take into consideration. Um, but also it opens the university up to litigation um, mm -hmm. when a student is expelled. And quite often it is, I mean, I don't know every student that's ever been expelled, but I'm seeing more and more cases where students who have been expelled are, you know, going after the university for having not followed procedural fairness and things along those lines. So. I had a question, Jacqueline. I think some time ago you posted an article that spoke about uh, vexatious litigation. And some of these cases had a pattern of someone just repeating the same thing again and again. But there are, of course, some other cases that are far worse than these cases where the, there, there are battles going on in the court where the accused person somehow, in some ways, wants to have a some sort of contact or even control over the person who's actually a victim of a severe harassment situation. And the way that they can actually have that contact is to actually meet them in court by appealing again and again and so forth. 
would you like to talk about this um, this uh, phenomena of vexatious harassment or in terms of litigation? Yes. So this is something that I became interested in um, for a variety of reasons, mostly because I'm interested in um, violence against women and, and domestic and, and sexual violence. Um, and I think that vexatious litigation is, it can be applied uh, in, in various contexts, but it's certainly something that I didn't even realize that abusers could do, but it's a, a particularly pernicious way to keep your victims close to you and also to drain them of their resources, um, which in a kind of roundabout way may eventually draw the victim back to them for financial reasons. So the way that vexatious litigation works is like, and there's, again, there's various different reasons why uh, a, a litigant may be perceived as vexatious, but in particularly in domestic violence and sexual violence cases, um, oftentimes the, um, the litigant will state that the person who's being abused has broken a law in some way, whether it's defamation for telling other people about the abuse that has happened to them, or um, sometimes in domestic violence cases, they will say that um, you know, child support isn't being paid, or they're oftentimes complaints that are disguised as other, like more legitimate and, and reasonable complaints, but the intention is to target the person that they are abusing so that they can either drain them of more resources or contact them again. Um, Interestingly enough, after I posted that article about vexatious litigation, um, someone that I know did contact me and said that um, her ex-husband was engaging in this behavior and deliberately trying to drain her of resources. And she just kind of spilled her whole story to me. And truly, I don't really know her that well. So I was like grateful that she felt comfortable explaining this story to me, but I felt very helpless in that case because um, there's very little that I can do. And first of all, I don't know very much about this. I've taken one online law class, um, so can't do very much there. And second of all, like I didn't have the resources to assist her with, um, with any of this. Um, but there are also cases where litigants are perceived as vexatious because they are deliberately abusing the court system. So there is one case in the HRTO. Um, I just like, I couldn't even believe what I was reading, but it was, a, it was an applicant with at least a male sounding name um, who, was clearly just trying to make a mockery of the HRTO. And basically what this litigant had written was that like, he went into a Walmart because he was um, the, the respondent was Walmart. He said that he had gone to the, um, the card section. He also stated that he was, and I'm using he pronouns because this is what the court ruling said, but um, he had said that he was a black transgender lesbian um, and he went to Walmart to purchase um, granola, Birkenstocks, and some other stereotypically feminist thing, went over to the card section and saw that there were only cards for men and that it was racist and sexist that the cards didn't include cards for like black lesbians like this person was. They also said that they were disabled and when they um, pressed the button to cross the street to get to Walmart, a, an image of a white man appeared telling them to cross the street, which was racist and sexist. Um, and the court dismissed the application as litigious, uh, I'm sorry, as vexatious because it was absolutely ridiculous. And even in the justification for pursuing um, a, an HRTO complaint, 
what he had written was any asshole can abuse this system. All you have to be, quote unquote, all you have to do is be an asshole. Um, and that was what this litigant was doing. So yeah. people will abuse the courts for a variety of reasons, whether for their own entertainment or to abuse other people. Um, but it's certainly a phenomenon that happens. And I think it's so devastating to know that even after people have undergone abuse, particularly in the cases of like domestic and sexual violence, that after they have undergone abuse for them to not be able to escape that because you can't just like ignore a court order. You have to continue seeing that person. It's just, it's so very upsetting to me. And it helps that courts can determine that a litigant is, um, is vexatious and can stop those proceedings from happening. But it takes quite a few cases like for, it, for them to do anything about it. It's almost as if the harm is bound to happen and only then can the person argue that it's actually a vexatious case. And yeah. what do you do? The harm has already, already been done. Yeah, I saw a case the other day and you know, I would classify this as vexatious litigation, but a, some girl had contacted her friends after she had been sexually assaulted um, and she told them and she named the person who had sexually assaulted her um, and it was in a group text and apparently the person who had assaulted her had gotten access to that and he sued her for defamation of character because she didn't have like a police report saying that it had happened and so she couldn't prove it. It was just like horrible, horrible things like that. People will use the courts to just continue to abuse. It's horrible. That is, that is a, well, no, yeah, that's quite crazy as well. Yeah, um, so that's a downer, but uh, it, all of this, learning about all of this has been so fascinating to me because it's not directly in line with the things that I research on the day to day, but it's of course an issue that continues to plague women more often than men it seems at least. Um, and what I'm hoping to do now, um, next steps with all of this, um, I'm applying for a postdoc with the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. So that's a policy organization that addresses um, revenge born in particular, but women who are often subjected to this kind of treatment don't really have any way to seek recourse on it. And as Yemen, I'm sure knows as someone who studies the internet, um, these things are very hard to get rid of on once they're on the internet. Um, so I'm hoping to work with the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative to amend policies and, legis and enact legislation to, um, to address things like this. And it's not directly related to the courts, but um, if we can if we can work with survivors of this kind of mistreatment, hopefully we can get some kind of policies in place to protect victims of this kind of stuff. So it does all kind of come full circle. Right. And I guess with a record of court cases, of tribunal cases, at least um, it seems like there's an indication that governments and other uh, structures of power may be starting to take these a bit more seriously. Yes, actually, interestingly enough, um, I just read a case the other day because now I'm trying to understand the laws that are, exist already for um, non-consensual porn and revenge porn in particular. But it was in Canada that some, I guess they were partners at some point, um, the male partner engaged, like showed the revenge porn, it was posted somewhere, and she sued him for $100,000 and won, which was wow. just like, oh God, it warmed my cold, dead heart to see something like that happening and for justice to be served in that way. And he appealed it, but um, hopefully 
that's maintained because that kind of intimate violation is something that I don't even know if like if damages can cover because it's so horrible but to see any kind of justice served was was a good thing okay so I guess on the whole um, even after you've read some in so many of these cases would you say you're perhaps cautiously optimistic about the direction that we're going as a society so when you say we as a society, you got to remember, I'm from a different society than you. I am American, um, reluctantly. Uh, so seeing things like the Human Rights Tribunal and seeing that justice is sometimes being served, particularly in Canada, mm-hmm. I am optimistic about, um, about Canada. I'm optimistic about the future of these cases. Um, I think that particularly starting in like 2017 with the Me Too movement, women's experiences are being believed a lot more. Um, and these are finally things that are being taken seriously. But, um, you know, the United States, we've got Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court still. So like, that's good. But I am terrified of what will happen. I like to believe that she, um, will never die. But in the event that she is replaced with a, with a more conservative person, um, we run the risk of things going real, real dark in the United States pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, it's already as dark as it can get. And it's hard to imagine oh, it getting worse. But knock but on wood. Surely, <laughs> um, Jacqueline, um, thank you so much for coming on our show. And honestly, like, for example, I uh, when 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 we first interviewed you on your Western Re- Research Forum presentation, I didn't know uh, who you were and and the kinds of posts you had and your following as well. And only afterwards I got to know more and I I followed you as well uh, on Twitter, for example. And honestly, for example, I followed Bernie Sanders and I enjoyed and a couple more really. And then. I think you gave me a lot of inspiration personally on so many matters and so many other people as well. And to have that voice, uh, it's really incredible and it's uh, amazing for our community. So thank you so much for all the work that you've done for all of us uh, at Western and beyond. Wow, that was so kind, and I didn't think that you were going to say that. So, sorry, you just caught me off guard a little bit. But thank you. That's such a such a kind thing to say, Yusuf. It's been really nice getting to know you the last couple of months as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I I got caught myself off guard as well, but I usually do. Uh, that's okay. So, <laughs> I will. Um, I guess this is the end, and I hope someday you can return to our show for part two whenever you're free, whenever things are less hectic as well. So, um, this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western Ontario. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was Yimin Ch- Uh, We've been speaking with uh, Jacqueline Siegel, and this episode was produced by me as well. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To to listen to us, we're on the radio on Western Radio 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, 
Select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Bradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night. Awesome. Take care, folks. Yay! Yay! All Thanks, right, friends. That was fun.